If you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We are looking at a series called The Organic God. And if you're here visiting with family, we're so glad that you're here. Merry Christmas. Uh, the Organic God has nothing to do with pesticides. It has nothing to do with chemical fertilizers. <clears throat> what we're looking at is what God looks like, what, how God presents himself, what, what God is really like uh, without the untainted uh, without the tainted things that we put on. Who is he untainted? Who is he purely? Who is he unpolluted? Because the truth is, we have, we've painted all these pictures of God. We have God in this little box. And throughout the Bible, God depicts himself. And we have the best revelation of who God is by what he tells us. And so that's what we're looking at over the next few weeks. We're going to do that into the new year, uh, probably through January. And one of the ways that he depicts himself as infinitely wise, and the, the topic today is the very wise God. There's a verse like Job 9.4. Look at what it looks like up here. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Aren't you glad that he's not only wise but powerful? Wouldn't you hate for him to have all the wisdom and nothing to do with it, or have all the power and he'd not be wise about how to do that? Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? So even our concept of wisdom is somewhat skewed because when we come to wisdom we think of our own wisdom and too many times our wisdom is just somebody trying to be funny it's it's really more wit uh, margaret feinberg wrote a little book called the organic god that's where i got the whole concept of of who god is when you when you kind of cut away all the fluff and the other stuff but when when she was writing this she says wisdom is not cute one-liners it's not clever sayings you've seen that you drive by a church and they have something on the on the little you know the, the deal where they put the letters out there and says let go and let god you know that's that's cute and it's nice but is it really wisdom or the the one that i saw just this week it, it says god grades on the cross not on the curve well it's true but is it wise Never, never mistake wit for wisdom, I think, is the, is the idea. And yet the Bible packs a lot of wisdom into areas, into small areas. There's a book called Proverbs, and the first nine chapters is all about getting wisdom. And, and then it goes on to give us a lot of practical things. In Proverbs 14.4, you won't see it up on the screen, but I ran across this. I love this. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. We have some farm people here because they immediately understood what that meant. You don't have to clean out the stall. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of an ox. Nobody wants to clean out a stall. When I was just a boy, my, my best friend Randy Scott had a, a horse. His, the horse's name was Prince. And the rule was if you went to ride Prince, you had to muck out the stall. You know what I learned? You know what the wisdom I learned from that? Every job, every great thing has some poopy parts. Did I say poop? I'm swearing like a six-year-old up here. I, um, every job worth doing has some stinky parts, some things that you don't want to do. And that's, that's very wise, and yet we don't get it because God in his infinite wisdom is far more than just little sayings. A.W. Tozier once wrote, God's wisdom is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. He has the perfect plan. He has the perfect goal. He has the perfect finale. He has the perfect result, and he knows how to get there perfectly. Now, what does that mean? God acts in perfect wisdom. No better, there's no better way to do it, and there's no better way that could be imagined. You couldn't imagine a better way of doing that. 
Now, when we're talking about God's wisdom, let's apply it to the Christmas time since it is Christmas time. Uh, how does God's perfect wisdom play out in the story of Jesus' birth? In, in God's perfect wisdom, Jesus, his son, was born in an animal stall. We're talking about the oxen and the mucking out the stall. God, in his perfect wisdom, allowed his son to be born in a, in a feeding trough, in an animal stall. Right, we're going to look at two things. Uh, the first one is this. What was so remarkable about Jesus' birth? Why, what makes it so remarkable? Why would we call it the, the perfect wisdom? And then the second thing that we're going to look at a little later is what was so wise about Jesus' birth. What was so remarkable is first, look at Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, get your iPhone out and check out your app. I know that it's there. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And by the way, there's a couple of different passages. There's one in Luke and there's one in Matthew. This is from Joseph's standpoint. And, and uh, I, we don't usually read this one, but this is, this is very interesting from Joseph's perspective. This is how the birth of Jesus came, Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Their idea of engagement was a little different from ours. I mean, they, there was a dowry paid. There was a legal contract made. They were pledged to one another. Once they had been pledged, the marriage was not official. They had not consummated the marriage. But the man was to get a house ready. As soon as the house was ready, he would come back and get his bride. Joseph did not have the home ready. They were pledged. The contract had been signed, but they had never consummated the marriage. It says before they came together. Look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Literally, once the contract had been signed, even if the marriage was not consummated, they considered it divorce. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What was so remarkable about, about Jesus' birth? Well, there are a lot of things that were remarkable. I just want to focus on two this morning. And here's the first one. The baby born in Bethlehem was God. The baby born in Bethlehem was God the Son. There are three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you say the Bible doesn't ever show that. Well, at Jesus' baptism, God the Son is there, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks. We know there are three personalities. There's one God. We call him the Trinity. And he's God the Son. Now, we sanitize this story in the church. I mean, we've done plays, we've done skits, we've done, we've done all these things, and we have Mary and Joseph, and they come, and they arrive clean, and she may be on a donkey, she may not. The truth is, she probably would have walked and we sanitized the whole thing because from where she left to where she arrived, nine months pregnant, was 100 miles. Including the last little bit, she would have had an incline of about 1,900 feet from below sea level to where Bethlehem was. So, it, you know, all the women here, you just think back when you're nine months pregnant, the day that you're ready to deliver, did you want to go climb a hill of 1,900 feet? I don't think so. They travel probably 20 miles a day. It was five days. They're camping out overnight. They finally get to Bethlehem when she delivers this child. And so we sanitize it. In, in, in reality, Rustic would be putting it mildly, and we'd be putting it nicely. 
Luke 2.7 simply says that Jesus was placed in cloths and placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Several years ago, I asked Gary Dixon, uh, the, the, the assistant pastor here, I asked him to, to make a manger for us. And he said, I don't have any wood that looks bad enough because mangers were not made with prime wood. And again, in Israel, there was not a lot of wood. And the truth is, it probably was a stone that was, that was hollowed out, just a square stone, and they, they hollowed it out, and that's where the trough was because wood was very valuable. But if it was wood, it was, it was very rustic. It's just a few things slapped together like this, and, and, and it's where the cattle ate. And it says that, that Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, was wrapped in rags, leftover pieces of material. They didn't have baby clothes and all this other stuff. He was wrapped in what we call swaddling clothes, but really rags and placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Virtually nothing is fleshed out. In times past and some of the other years, I've given quizzes and people get mad at me because I ask questions like, what did the innkeeper say? The truth is no innkeeper is even mentioned in the Bible. We just know that there was no room for them in the inn. And, and, and so much of what we have and so much of what we have always accepted is something that's not really fleshed out. All that we know is they made this 100-mile trip because of an obscure command, an obscure decree by Caesar that fulfilled a prophecy that was made 700 years before that. Now get that. In, Mar- in Micah 5.2, it says that Jesus would be born not only in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem of Judea. There were two Bethlehems. It's spelled out. Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, is a tiny village still today. It never grew. It was, it was very small. So there's an obscure c- decree to fulfill a promise from 700 years before that Jesus would be born in a specific place. And the virgin birth that is mentioned here is also, uh, we see it in in Luke 1, verses 26 through 35. There's a little more detail about how that came about with Mary. But it also goes back 720 years to a prophecy made by Isaiah. So 700 years before you were born, could somebody tell exactly what city you were going to be born in and that there was going to be this really remarkable thing that a woman who had never had a sexual relationship was going to have a baby. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. But we get to this point and we say, well, he was a remarkable, a unique baby, but that's really all there is. I'll never forget when I was, when I was just a boy, we used to live across the street from the Francis family, and Randy Francis uh, was a friend of mine, and, and he came over to the house a lot, and one day he was standing around, we were talking about Christmas and Jesus' birth, and he says, you don't really believe that whole virgin birth and that, that Jesus was God. And I, and I said, of course we do. And Randy Francis said this to me, the Bible never says that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, I was, again, I was about 10, 11 years old, but I had had all these memory verses that I had in my mind, and I said, well, there's this verse in John chapter 10, verse 30, it says, I and the Father are one, Jesus said that. And he said, I don't think it's really there. So we got the Bible, and we're checking through, and it's John chapter 10, and he looks at it, and what's really remarkable is when you look at the verses just after that, after Jesus said that he was one with the Father, the Jews that were there that day picked up big rocks, they were going to kill him, they were going to stone him to death, because it was blasphemy, because he had claimed to be God. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. Jesus is the Son of God. There's another verse that that helps us out a little bit. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Look at it. It says, In the beginning was the Word. John is writing this. He was one of the closest disciples. He was the one that, that, that he is described as the one whom God, or that Jesus loved. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John writes these four verses starting out his gospel as he's telling the story of Jesus. And do you notice he's, what he's saying is that in the beginning was the Word, and he later identifies Jesus as the Word. But in the beginning, from eternity, Jesus already existed. He also says the Word was with God, and the Word was God, so he had a distinct personality. He was with God, but he was also at the same time God. So we know that Jesus was with him, and yet he was at the, at, in one in the Trinity. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Jesus was there at the creation. In fact, he, we were told in different places in the Bible that Jesus was instrumental in the creation. He is the creator God. And then we're told also in him was life. There's a place in the Old Testament where it says that God breathes the breath of life into man. And I believe that that was Jesus that did that. The breath of life comes into man. So who is this remarkable man? The baby born in Bethlehem was God. The word became flesh, it says in John 1.14, and made us a dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And you say, well, that, that's great, but what does that have to do with wisdom? In Psalm 111.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? When you understand who he is, it changes everything. Now, I didn't know he was going to be here, but I'm going to embarrass somebody. Mike Wood, would you stand up for just a minute? This is Mike Wood. He's one of our police officers. I love Mike. Don't you love Mike? Mike showed up at the fall festival. What was your costume? Batman. He was Batman. Okay. Thank you, Mike. If you saw Mike dressed as Batman... Would you go up against him? There was a little boy, and I haven't even had a chance to tell Mike this. There was a little boy who came up to me. Mike had just walked off, and a little boy, four, five, six years old, and he looked up at me, and I told you this right after, right after the fall festival, but this little boy came up, and he said, Hey, Mistel? And I said, Yes. He said, Is that the real Batman? I wasn't going to burst this kid's bubble. So I said, What do you think? And he turned around to his mom and said, I told you it was a real one. Mike dressed as Batman looks like Batman. And he's intimidating. And I'm not going to go up against him. But Jesus didn't just dress up as God. He's the real thing. He is the real deal. The baby born in Bethlehem was God the son. Secondly, the baby born in Bethlehem was God made man. The baby born in Bethlehem was God made man. Now, make no mistake, I believe this is big, a bigger stumbling block for most people than the resurrection. I think more people have a hard time with this than anything else. Because, you see, I look at it this way. If Jesus really was God, if Jesus really was who he said he was, then dying and coming back to life is no big deal. If, I mean, if you're God, the resurrection is not a big deal. That's not the issue. The real issue for me is why would God come down as a baby in the first place? Why would God lower himself to be a man? And yet that's exactly what we're told over and over and over again. J.I. Packer once wrote, God's incarnation is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else the New Testament contains. 
And through the years, some people have struggled with this so much that the pendulum has gone both ways. And one way is they say, well, God was never really man. He came, but he, he didn't really have a fleshly body. But we're told absolutely that he did. Not only could he walk on water, but he could eat fish. Not only could he, he have all these other things, he could get hungry and he could get tired. He, he experienced everything that we experience in our bodies. And the, then the pendulum would go the other way, that he was fully man, but he was not fully God. And we've already seen that he had to be God. So both extremes are not right. He really was a man, and he really was God. The Bible is very clear. Here's what I think that we miss. Jesus is not God minus something. Jesus is God plus humanity. It, it's not, there's, there's a, a very famous or very well-known passage in, in Philippians called the kenosis because it talks about emptying, but the only thing that Jesus emptied himself of was his glory, his majesty, the, the surroundings of who he was. And, and when Jesus came, he was fully man. Look at Colossians 2.9. The Bible says this over and over and over again. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You could not say it any plainer than that. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God lives as a man in bodily form. And the words that are there in the Greek are very clear that it's God and man united. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it talks about Jesus was, was tempted like every other man, yet without sin. So not only did he come fully God, fully man, but he lived his entire life without ever violating any of God's laws. What's so remarkable about Jesus' birth? The baby born in Bethlehem was God the Son. The baby born in Bethlehem was God made man. Let's look at the last part, though. What was so wise about Jesus' birth? Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Two more verses. Joseph has had this dream. He's had this vision while he's sleeping. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until he, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, just as he is told. What was so wise about Jesus' birth? Well, first of all, Jesus' birth gives us incredible direction. It gives us guidelines. It gives us the way to live. It, it shows us how we can live. And, and Joseph has been given directions. He's told to do some specific things, and he does exactly what the angel told him to do. And you say, well, pastor, if I had an angel uh, you know, drop down and show me what to do, I would believe it uh, as well. You've got something e even better. You have written directions. It's called the Bible. It's God's word to us. It is in his instruction manual, and it's also his love letter. He has given us everything that we need to know about life right here. And God has communicated it to us. And we're lost without God give us, giving us directions. I come from a family, we are incredibly intelligent people, okay, maybe not. I come from a family that's a big family. And I come from a family that can get lost anywhere. I, I'll never forget when I was a little boy, we lived and, and we, we had to walk about eight blocks to school. Of course, it was uphill both ways and in snow up to your waist. No, it wasn't. You walked down two blocks, you walked up about six blocks. When you came back, you walked down six blocks and up about two blocks, about eight blocks to the house. And when I was in first grade, my, my older brother said, listen, you get out a little earlier, you wait for me, and I'll show you for sure how to walk home. And I thought, only a moron would not know how to walk home until my brother, my older brother that showed me how to walk home got lost. 
He wasn't paying attention. Now, granted, he'd been doing this for five years, but he still got lost. So I come from a family where directions, Kathy kind of laughs, because if I say, I'm sure it's to the left, she says, turn right and we'll find it. And she's right. Isaiah 42, 16 says, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. What is so wise about Jesus' birth is it gives us direction from a position of total humility. Because if you are lost and if you need directions, do you want somebody saying, hey, you moron, hey, you ignoramus, hey, you dumb person, you're lost. No, what you want is you want somebody to come humbly from a position of humility. About three years ago, I, had, I, I, I injured my knee. I had to have knee surgery, orthoscopic, no big deal. Went in, had the surgery, went into rehab. It was, you know, you know, I was very worried about it, but it wasn't a big deal. But when I got into rehab, I, I went to this rehab place, and I was doing the rehab, and I thought I was doing pretty well. And this guy that was also obviously for rehab came over, and he said, listen, the way you're doing that, you're going to hurt your knee. I want to say, well, yeah, but you're not the guy. They set me on this machine. They told me what to do. And I actually, at that point, I was doing this exercise where they put a rubber band around you and you just sidestep. And he said, you need, to, you need to get down in a squat while you're doing that. The way you're doing that, you're leaning over forward. You're actually going to hurt your knee. And the, the guy from rehab came over and I said, who's this guy? He says, oh, that's Roger. He's had seven knee surgery. He's almost lived here for the last four years. And I said, why did he have to have seven knee surgeries? He said, well, when he came into rehab, he did all the exercises wrong and he hurt his knee. So guess what? I listened to Roger. And the Lord came in such a way, not just to give us theoretical insight. God himself humbled himself, was born in a manger. He didn't come with money. He didn't come with an entourage. He didn't come to live in a palace. He came to live like everybody else. In fact, below everybody else. We're told that Jesus never owned a home. He never had a place to call his own. And so now when Jesus knows about my promotions and my demotions, when he knows about my adversity and my prosperity, when he knows about my tragedy or my victory, when he knows about my health issues or my handicaps or my heartaches or my helplessness, I listen. Because he's been there and he's done that. Paul is writing about this, and in Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And God came in such a way, to live in such a way, to experience all of the temptations that we've experienced and without sin. Chuck Swindoll writes about this, and when he's talking about the direction, this is what he says. Something dramatic takes place to change the egocentric perceptive that most of us have of ourselves. We spend our lives focused on ourselves rather than upon God. And the result of all that is that we view God from human eyes. We think that he's really a lot like us, except he's older and he's, he's a little stronger. We think his will is pretty much like our will, except his is a little smarter and maybe has a longer way around. We, we read our human style into God's character so that when he throws us a curve, we view him as unfair or untrustworthy. Or worse, our faith gets shattered when bad things happen to people that we admire, to little children, to whole countries, to neighborhoods with a hurricane or tornado. The truth is, if I were going to do things, I would not have Dietrich Bonhoeffer die 
in a concentration camp at the age of 39. I would not have Jim Elliott and those other missionaries in the 50s be killed by the Aka Indians that they were trying to reach. I would never have Corey Tim Boom put in a concentration camp and have her sister die in that concentration camp during World War II. If I were God, I would not do those things. But that doesn't say that God's directions are wrong. They're just different from mine. And we still have his directions in his instruction manual. The birth of Jesus proves to me that he came and he understands. Here's the last one. Jesus' birth provides new life. Joseph is told by the angel of the Lord that Jesus has a specific purpose. If you look back in verse 21, it says, She will give birth to a son and you to give him the name Jesus, means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Be nice to know clearly why you're here, why you're put here on this earth. It would be nice to know for sure why you're here. I believe that I'm here to make other people feel better about their hair. I believe I'm here to 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 do, you know, to maybe show other people how much faster they can ride a bicycle. I'm here to be the, the poster boy for this is not how to do it. No. Jesus never lost sight of why he came. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus comes to a tomb. His best friend Lazarus has, has passed away, and they give him word, and he comes four days later, and he comes to, to Mary and to Martha, and he basically gives both of them the same message. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. The angel said that Jesus would save the people from their sins. Jesus tells Mary and Martha just, just maybe months or maybe even weeks before he goes to the cross that he came for a purpose, and that is to pay for people's sins. And if you believe in him, did you notice I didn't say you had to pay him? You don't have to join a church. You don't have to be good enough. You just believe. You just trust him. The birth of Jesus provides new life. There's a new Christmas song this year that came out from Joseph's perspective, and I'm totally, I'm totally loving this song because it was written by my son, John Knight, sung by Dave Barnes. But this is how the words go. Was Bethlehem white as snow? Had you walked as far as your feet could go? Were you scared to death as so far from home on that Christmas night when love was born? Did Mary cry in that makeshift room? Did he take too long or come too soon? Did you calm the one who would calm the storm? Or did he calm you when love was born? Was it a silent night? Could you hear heaven sigh, giving this gift of love, saving you, saving us? Could you hear the angels sing? Did you rock to sleep the restless king? Did you kiss the head where they placed the thorns? Did you feel that sting when love was born? Do you think he knew what he came here for? The whole world changed when love was born. Did you kiss the place where the thorns? Did you kiss his head, the head where they placed the thorns? What it cost Jesus to come and live and die for us is astounding. It's even more astounding if we somehow neglect 
to accept the gift that he provided. John 1, 12 and 13 says, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. God gives us babies, and babies change us forever. This year we are celebrating because John and Crystal, the, the same John that wrote that song, they thought that their family was done. They thought they would never have any other children. They had given up on the, the hope of that, and when their daughter Ashley was almost 16, she is 16 now, they had a new addition to their baby, Carter, a little boy. He's four months old. I'm not prejudiced, but he is the most beautiful baby known to mankind. But what if Crystal had said, no, I don't really want this child? What if after waiting 16 years for another baby, if she had said, you know, I, I think that our family is complete. We have three. We're, you know, Ashley's getting ready to go to college in a couple years. I just don't think I want this baby. I think I'm going to wait. What if she had done that? And you say, are you kidding me? There is no, no way in this world, there is no way that she would turn away this baby, this baby that was given to her by God then why have you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you share in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you, Father, that you give us an opportunity to accept your child, Jesus Christ, who didn't stay a child but who came to die on the cross. Thank you, Father, that we can accept this child as from you, this love gift that you've given and that we don't have to be good enough. We just have to believe. So today, Father, if there's anyone who has never accepted this gift, may they do it today. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.